Welcome to the Present History Podcast. We have a very special episode today uh, as we are with Dr. Edward Madigan, a doctor and senior lecturer in public history at Royal Holloway University of London. Thank you so much for being here. It's an honour to have you on. So thank you. Thank you. Um, it's good to, well, I was about to say it's good to be here, but I'm in my own living room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely good to join you this afternoon. So thanks for inviting me. No, thank you. Thank you. So would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, about about your background? What kind of made you want to get into studying history? Sure. Um, well, I grew up in a culture in which and I suppose this is a bit of a cliche, but it's true. There was a big emphasis on on storytelling. Um, so people, when I was a child, would tell stories often about the past in a very vivid and, and usually embellished way. And I, I was just interested in the past as a world of stories and, you know, human endeavor, things that happened. And I suppose when I was growing up, the things that the historical events that loomed large in my world were, you know, things like the Irish Revolution, the Easter Rising, but also the, the two world wars. Mm -hmm. uh, and people would talk about these events, adults usually, when I was growing up, as though they'd experienced themselves, that them themselves, although they, they usually hadn't. So I was always fascinated by these very dramatic stories from the past. And I would say in the culture, in which I grew up, there was a big, there was a, there was a great love of the past. Mm. There wasn't necessarily quite the same love of history. Sure. And that's something that I've, I've kind of grappled with through, throughout my life. And especially, um, more recently as a public historian and someone who's been involved in commemoration and that sort of thing. So anyway, there, there was a big emphasis on the past and people talked about it a lot when I was a child and a, an adolescent. And then I, largely because of that, I decided to do a, a history degree. But it wasn't really, I, I think it took at least a history degree for me to say, right, well, there's a difference between being interested in the past and being interested in history. Sure. And so at a very basic level, history is the, the study, the exploration, analysis, evaluation of the past, whereas you know, the past itself is, is, is highly capacious. It's just yeah. all, all, you know, all previous human endeavor. And I think, yeah, I, I did a history degree in Dublin and I worked for a while then afterwards. And I, I just kept, I, I, you know, this sense that I wanted to do more with this was, was always there. And um, so I did different things for a while. I went to the States, I worked over there. And then I came back and I said, yeah, I'd like to embark on a, on a PhD. And what that ended up being was a thesis on religion in the British Army during the Great War. Mm. And and the reason I focused on that was, I suppose, linked to my youth and growing up as well. I'd always been fascinated by the ways in which, you know, traumatic events, whether it's famine or um, war or natural disasters, the way they impact people's understanding of the world and particularly their religious worldview and the sure. term religious in the broadest sense. And I was kind of interested in the First World War, partly because as a as a youngster, I'd imbibed a very British understanding of the war from Britain. Right. There, there was really no interest in, in the Irish experience of the war when I was grow, growing up. That's 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 changed completely now. But the, there wasn't it wasn't seen as an Irish event and there was no understanding that really 
that the Easter Rising and the Irish Revolution sort of were, were part of the the violent chain of events of the Great sure. War. So yeah, I did I did a doctorate in 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 which which became a book, Faith Under Fire, and I I continued to pursue that. And later on, I um, I moved to the UK and I I became the the first uh, historian at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. No, that's fascinating. I think it's you know being in Ireland and everything like that it gives you quite a a unique position with the whole Protestant Catholic thing to be able to to talk about religion in in society, but then also in the Great War, like you said, with the the Irish uprising and everything like that, and and the experience of the First World War there. So it's, it's fascinating. I think people's attitudes towards the past certainly were influenced by the Northern Irish conflict, which of course was 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 very much ongoing when I was when I was a child. Um, and that, and that continues to be the case. But I suppose what, what was interesting for me is that when I wanted to look at a particular group of people, a community, when I was doing my doctoral thesis, I didn't want to look at Irish Catholics because that's the, that's the, my own community. That's the community sure. I come sure. from myself. And I wanted to have a degree of detachment. So I, I didn't want to look at the Irish experience, honestly, of anything. And I began originally looking at the French and British um, engagement with the Great War and and religious sensibilities in the French and British armies um, because I, I'd, I'd lived and worked in France, I'd been a student there and I was particularly taken with French history. Ultimately, I, I kind of dropped the French element to it because I, I felt that I couldn't do either side the justice it deserved. Um, but yeah, I think because I've, I've become a, a, a historian of Britain and particularly of England, and I'm neither British nor English, so yeah. you know, <laughs> I bring something. I hope at least that I bring an outsider's kind of um, sensibility in a good way to the study of those things. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And like you said, you were the the resident historian at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Um, how do you think that your experience there has, if it has, impacted your perception or study of of the Great War, and then even the modern commemoration of it? Yeah, that's that's an interesting one, Zach. Um, so I joined the Commonwealth War Graves Commission in 2011, and I stayed with them for about 20 months, so just under two years. And at the time, I, I appreciated this, but I appreciated all the more looking back. It was it was an extraordinary role for a scholar of the Great War to take mm -hmm. up. Um, so for listeners who may not know, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission is the organisation that oversees the um, maintenance of the cemeteries and memorials to the missing of all of the British and Commonwealth dead, so the Imperial dead of the two world wars. So that's that's about 1.7 million servicemen and a small number of service women. So it was an amazing thing for an Irish person to be asked to do because traditionally Irish people hadn't been much involved in this. And it was very, it was deeply important to British and Canadian and Australian Sure. Um, so it was something that I was coming to as an outsider and I was conscious of that privilege. But as a First World War historian, it was just extraordinary. So the, the commission hadn't previously had a historian and they'd, they'd um, created this role because they knew the centenaries were coming and they felt that they had to do a bit more to engage public interest right. in the, the commission and, and in the stories of the dead, essentially. So in by 2011, I had been a scholar of the Great War for, you know, quite a few years. I'd done a doctorate in First World War studies, 
And I, th I think then I probably thought I had a good intellectual grasp of the military dynamics of the war, the social and cultural dimensions to the war, you know, the British, Irish, French experience of the conflict. But it wasn't until I started regularly visiting the battlefields of the Great War and especially the battlefield cemeteries or the cemeteries near the battlefields, especially in France and Belgium, but but also elsewhere. You know, I was lucky enough to go to Gallipoli. It wasn't until I did that that I think I, I truly got a sense of the of the of the extraordinary human cost of the war. Sure. Which is what a devastating experience this had been for the servicemen themselves, but perhaps especially for their families. So, you know, when you when you visit the cemeteries of the, of the Great War, you gain an insight into loss, separation, death, bereavement on a, on a vast scale. And that's really striking. You know, yes. that's that's something that really stayed with me. It, it, emotionally, it was quite powerful, but just intellectually, it was it was fascinating. And so, you know, the cemeteries of the Great War are a place in which we, we can learn so much about the experience of the conflict. But they're also places of great tranquility and um, and peace. So it, it was just a remarkable experience. Also, from a military point of view, I think visiting the Western Front gave me a, a really clear picture or a clearer picture than I'd had up to that point of the military dynamics of the war on the Western Front. Sure. So, you know, that the, the, I, I kind of knew intellectually that what the Germans had done in the autumn of 1914 was seize all the high ground that, of, mm. of which they were already in possession from essentially the Belgian coast down to the, the, the Swiss border. But when you actually see that, it, it, you know, when you when you work out where the front lines were, you can see it quite clearly. And in some places, the high ground is, is not high at all. You know, it's, it's a crease in, in an otherwise deadly flat landscape. But in other parts of the front and even in, you know, Belgian Flanders and places like Messines, um, and then further south in the Somme, it's very rolling countryside. So you, you really get a, a sense of the nature of the war through the landscape. So that was that was amazing, too. In in terms of this question about the um, the modern commemoration. of the Yeah, war, to me, this is endlessly fascinating because I, I was in the War Graves Commission. As the centenaries of the First World War were approaching yeah. and, you know, it. it I, I had a sense of this beforehand, but it really struck me when I was with the commission and it, it, stay, it stayed with me. The First World War, the two world wars in general, but especially the Great War, have a deep and profound and continuing significance for British people. In one way, I think that's, it, it's well, it's just very interesting, but it's, there's an admirable sense in which People of Britain, and I would say Canada and Australia, New Zealand and France probably too, the way in which they express solidarity for the suffering of their ancestors is interesting and perhaps admirable, definitely. Mm -hmm. I think the as an outsider who didn't grow up in this culture, when you see you know, the, the war being remembered and talked about every October and November, that's, that's, that's really quite striking, you know, this, this determination to remember. Um, however, <laughs> and, and this isn't a criticism of people or a community or a culture particularly, but what's striking to me is is the emotionalism, like the continued emotionalism sure. in, in terms of the way people engage with the First World War. 
And I think that tends to obstruct people's understanding of the conflict. So when it comes to the Great War and the Second World War also, but you know, this is de definitely the case with the First World War, people's capacity for sanctimony, self-righteousness, indignation it is pretty limitless. You know, you see it in the press, you see it within organizations and you see it on an individual level. And, and I got to see that up, up very close and personal when I worked with the War Graves Commission. Um, but equally, people's genuine interest in this cataclysmic, you know, profoundly violent and, and devastating historical event is 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 really is genuine and it's um and it's it's really widespread. So as a historian, that that of course has to be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Now I think that it's a it's a kind of fascinating phenomenon where people don't who might not even know about the Great War, they might not know about what necessarily happened, they still have this sense that it was right. Or they still have this sense that it is it is it should be commemorated in such a glorified fashion and we have the glorious dead on on the cenotaph and everything like that and i think it's it's a fascinating kind of thing in especially the modern public where people who might not even know anything about it still have this general sense or this general feeling of an understanding of the war and that it was right i just think it's fascinating not so much zach that the people think it was right mm. I, I mean i think that's a common or especially popular viewpoint even now but there is no question that the servicemen who experienced the war and especially those who died are revered in british culture sure there's no getting around that and as you say i mean think you think you're quite right that even people who are ignorant of the military or social or cultural dynamics of the war tend to have very strong feelings about how it should be remembered, yeah. to be commemorated, how it should be interpreted, and can often be quite indignant when they feel, I don't know, someone like me or a journalist or someone else makes a statement about the war or you know comments on it in a way that falls short of their view of the conflict. Yeah. Um, so, th so that to me is is frustrating in one way, but it's also it's also just fascinating, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, why do you think that the Great War has such a, a prominent part in the modern psyche of of Britain as a whole? Really, what what about the Great War kind of sets it apart from anything else? Why is it still so prominent? I think that's a that's a you know a great question and a question that isn't asked often enough, or uh, I think even by historians of the conflict and hasn't been properly resolved. The First World War retains greater emotional resonance for British people than any other historical event. Mm. I, I, I think that's the case, and I, and I don't think many would dispute that. It, it's understandable and, and not at all surprising that the men and women who experienced the conflict engaged with it in a very emotional way. It was emotional for them, particularly those who experienced combat or served in the forces either as men or women um, and those who lost loved ones in the fighting it's also very understandable that the same people remembered the conflict and were determined to remember throughout the 20s and 30s mm. and you know in the subsequent decades and i think you know if you look into the history of the commemoration of the war um, the resurgence of interest in the conflict in the 60s and when we're talking there about i think about a resurgence rather than an emergence is that you know 
it's understandable because many of the people doing the remembering or the studying or the exploring or the representing in the 60s were the sons and daughters of people who'd experienced sure. that. What is more surprising and, and deeply intriguing from the historian's point of view is the way it continues to resonate emotionally today with people, let's say, of your generation who are you know, just in their 20s now and have, know no one who experienced the conflict and cannot have known anyone who experienced it. And, you know, for whom it's actually a very distant event. I'm struck by how often young people or, you know, people in the 30s or 40s talk about the war as though it is a, something that is very personal and very emotionally resonant for them. You know, that's 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 quite yeah. to me. And, and I think part of that is the commemorative culture that emerged in the 20s and 30s has evolved to some degree. But it, it remains uh, just embedded, ingrained in the wider culture of British society. And also the view of the war that was always there to some extent. You know, we should remember that this, you know, there was profound ambivalence about the conflict even during um, the, the war itself. But what was really reinforced in the 1960s, which is the view of the war as this great tragedy, uh, yeah. a senseless tragedy, a, a, perhaps a futile tragedy, the view that, you know, the so-called lions led by donkeys who that's just very appealing to people on an emotional level. There's something yeah. fascinating to people about the tragedy of the Great War, the, you know, what what Wilfred Owen called the pity of war. And Wilfred Owen is, is if you like, although I hesitate to use this term, he's as responsible <laughs> as anyone. He's as guilty as anyone for, <laughs> for our emotionalism when we consider the Great War. Sure. because. It was so powerful and because he himself died and we know that he was traumatized by the experience of combat and yet he returned and he served with distinction and he died in the week before the war. Like there, there's an undeniable poignancy about mm. experience of the conflict. And, that, and, you know, I think historians, rather than being frustrated by that or angry or sort of, um, you know, at a loss to, to um, understand it, should acknowledge that emotionalism and you know, ask themselves where it comes from. And I think part of it comes from the story of the Great, Great War is simply fascinating to us in dramatic terms, in human terms. But what is that story? Well, that story is, is actually usually quite a simple one. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, 780,000 men from these islands died as a result of military service. It was a devastating conflict of unprecedented violence and destruction. And it, it was just this 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 great moment of loss and um, and and futile conflict. You know the the view that the war didn't really achieve anything, although it's been challenged by military historians and by cultural critics and other commentators. It that remains remarkably persistent, and it's sort of understandable why people view it in that way. But if we take the recent centenaries as um, you know, as a case study, as a, as a context in which to explore this, that that was an interesting and in, and in some ways very disappointing moment if you're a historian of the conflict. So sure. the, I was involved in some of the government centenary planning, and I think there was some, you know, remarkably thoughtful and powerful commemorative events uh, were staged and commemorative projects or so projects that were either inspired by the experience of the war or were designed to remember it or commemorate it in some way. So, but but however, what, what I think we saw between 2014 and 2018 was a lot of remembering with yeah. a capital R and not a huge amount of understanding, really. Sure. 
And, and if we think our ancestors are worth remembering, then shouldn't we also try to understand that the, the profound complexity of the worlds in which they lived and died? So, you know, there was a big emphasis on the dead. And in a way that's fitting, you know, uh, almost a million, well, 780,000, 1.1 million from across what was then the British Empire. That, those are staggering figures. Yeah. And, you know, it's not inappropriate to remember the dead. But the, you know, the problem during the centenaries, and this remains an issue, is that the dead tend to be remembered at the expense of other groups and individuals whose lives were also torn apart by the violence of the war, but, but sure. who, who weren't killed. So I'm talking here about servicemen who were psychologically traumatized or physically disabled or both as a result of their experiences. And I'm talking about, you know, women in the armed forces and perhaps especially, you know, I think this is worth considering the, the bereaved, whether they were themselves service men or women or, or especially civilians. So mothers and fathers of servicemen who, who didn't return home, brothers, sisters, wives, you know, and people who, who knew usually men who were killed at the front. There was very little emphasis on those people during the century. Mm -hmm. Um, so some there was some reference to them in the media and some excellent scholarly work was done on, on all of the groups I've just mentioned. But when it came to commemorating the major milestones of the Great War between 2014 and 2018, you, you simply did not see any reference to the traumatized, disabled, wow. the bereaved. They, did, they were sort of written out of the commemorative narrative. So to me, that was a missed opportunity, but it, it reveals a great deal about the way the war is understood in Britain. Sure. It, uh, there's um, a, an almost exclusive emphasis on the dead because the dead speak to us about what we think the war was. Mm. This deeply poignant, dramatic tragedy in which a huge number of people died for very little gain, you know, for very little demonstrable reason or purpose. Yeah, I think it's fascinating as well. I think that that's kind of the, the main point there is the, the romanticization of the the event the romanticization of of the dead where it becomes this really big romantic almost story of sacrifice of young people going over to fight for for a cause that they thought was worth it and then they die but it turns out that maybe it wasn't necessarily as worth it as they first thought and there's this kind of romantic narrative that goes along with it and i think that it's it's a really interesting kind of situation that we've got in in the modern British understanding of the First World War. Um, Def definitely, Zach, I would agree with that. And, and I think we've seen this as well with with kind of a resurgence in media, in uh, portrayals and representations of, of the First World War. So we had, during the centenaries, we had Our World War on, on the BBC, which was a very good uh, little mini-series. Um, but then even 1917, the film, that's been hugely, hugely successful. Um, what do you think about this modern representation or or the modern education surrounding the First World War? Um, again, the, these are really interesting uh, programs and, and films and media representations you've mentioned here. I, I think the um, Our World War series was, to me, was really interesting because it was based on, it was dramatizations essentially of three episodes that occurred during the Great War, or three stories if you like so it was based on real sources and i just thought it was well done you know mm -hmm. uh, and I, I asked our class in um 
at Royal Holloway to look at it. But I remember watching it at the time and I, I knew, for example, the first episode focuses on um, the Battle of Mons and, you know, which was essentially the first encounter between the Germans and the British in, in August 1914, the first major encounter militarily. And and it's just it's a it's a long overlooked moment. It, it of course, was uh, an episode in which people in Britain at the time were were deeply invested and interested and engaged. But it, it tends to have been forgotten because in a way this is understandable. It's been overshadowed by the Somme offensive in 1916, mm. Battle of Passchendaele in, in 1916 and uh, 17, I should say, and you know the, the Dardanelles campaign. The, these enormous offensives. These are these far greater um, military military kind of episodes later in the war. But the Battle of Mons is, is just a fascinating moment. But I, I knew a little bit about Morris Deese already, because, partly because he's Irish, but also I'd seen his grave, which is in saint Symphorian Cemetery in, in, in Belgium. So I thought that was really worthwhile. 1917 to me, as someone who's interested in cinema, is, a, is a, just a great piece of filmmaking. Yeah. And as a historian of the Great War, there was very little in it that, you know, bothered me or I thought that was, you know, was going to be that I thought was misleading or inaccurate. And I didn't expect there to be, to be honest, because even from the trailer, you can see, well, this is quite a small drama. This mm. is a story between two men. No spoilers. Um, <laughs> and what happens to them during the, the, the period that the Germans retreated to the um, Hindenburg line in, in April 1917. So it, this film isn't going to try to tell us any big picture um, lessons about the First World War. It's not going to try and impart any kind of narrative about the, sure. you know, the political or even the bigger military dimension to the conflict. What it's going to do is offer us a small drama in, in the midst of this very kind of um, fascinating setting of the Western Front. So for a historian of the First World War, seeing the Western Front recreated in a, in a very, what seemed to me, accurate fashion on a massive budget, what mm -hmm. um, was was just was remarkable. You know, I went to see it in the cinema and I'm glad I did. I'm glad I caught it. It wasn't all that long, I think, before the, the pandemic landed. So I just yeah. got <laughs> Um, and I saw it at a decent cinema and there weren't that many people there and I really got into it. Uh, I thought the acting was great. I thought, you know, some of the controversy was interesting, you know, about the Sikh soldiers being depicted on the Western Front in 1917. And, you know, there was some reactionary comment about that. Oh, there wouldn't have been Indian soldiers there in 1917. And I thought that that then gave rise to an in interesting discussion about race sure. in the World War and non-white experience within the British forces. So all of that was, was was just all very positive. In terms of the education and the way in which young people are instructed about the First World War, though, I, I find this a bit frustrating. The sense I get from talking to you and your classmates and, you know, students I get year after year at Royal Holloway is actually not a huge amount is taught in second mm -hmm in Britain, either at the, you know, the intermediate level, the O level. No, that's not right anymore. GCSE. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's an term there. <laughs> o level. So I was about the 80s or 90s. Anyway, so the GCSE level or, or A level. Um, 
And yet there is nonetheless an emphasis on the First World War through visits to battlefields or through the poetry and English literature and that sort of thing. So what students often end up with is, is a pretty two dimensional, narrow understanding of the war, again, as this, this tragic event. Yeah. Um, so th to me, that's a bit frustrating just in pedagogical terms, just in terms of education. You know, what are what are what are young people being taught about this? But then it's kind of difficult. I really sympathize with secondary school teachers or people who design the curricula and have met with and collaborated with people in those fields over the past number of years. You know, it's it's just difficult to get beyond the poetry. It's sure. difficult to get beyond, you know, if you bring a group of 13 or 14 or 15 year olds to the former Western Front and they attend the last post ceremony at Menning Gate in Ypres, it's profoundly moving. And, and when they see what what's Sassoon called the 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 um, God, what do they call them? The nameless names, the, uh, the intolerably nameless names on the archway of the Menning Gate. The overwhelming impression one gets is this was slaughter on a vast scale because it was. So it's then difficult, you know, you, you have to be quite well instructed to go from that impression to a fairly detached understanding of the, the military dynamics of the war or the or the political impact of the war or the social experience of the conflict. And, you know, so I understand these things. And, and, you know, as someone who worked in the War Graves Commission, I think young people should go to the former Western Front. Yeah. And I support that. And I think it's I think it's often a very um, visceral experience for them in, in a positive sense, you know. So it, it's just it's endlessly difficult. It's very easy for someone like me, Zach, you know, who works in a university and has, you know, two teaching terms worth of time to go through the nuance and complexity and 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 all the, the kind of minutiae of the military and social dynamics of the war to criticize the way it's taught in school for <laughs> because you know it's just a different context and you know the, the 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 students are at a different stage in their lives and so forth but yeah i think there is a danger that either it's not taught in schools and thus young people imbibe this very much whether we like it or not this continuing lines led by donkeys one dimensional, oh, what a tragic, futile war narrative of the conflict, or they're taught in a way that, you know, that involves visits to the Western Front or poetry of the war that is partial at best or gives a partial or misleading impression. But, you know, often I think in terms of education, the key thing is just to get young people interested yeah. in, in the past in general. And, and if I'm a First World War historian, then in, in the Great War, yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And yeah. I, Something like 1917 will do that so much better than any number of lectures or classes or or, or history books. So, you know, I think students the peaking the interest, mm. like, you know, when I when I was 10 or 11 years old, I was fascinated by um, the Easter Rising because I'd visited Kilmainham Jail and that's where the leaders, most of the leaders were executed. So, you know, I had a very an extremely two dimensional understanding of what the Easter sure. Rising was. But but that and but now I think I have hopefully <laughs> all these years later <laughs> a, more, a more complex understanding. So I think maybe the peaking of interest is is the key thing, and there can be no doubt that visiting a battlefield or a battlefield cemetery or one of the great memorials to the missing at Thiepval, let's say, or or at the Menning Gate, that's a visceral and I think important experience. But of course, all of those things 
will 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 serve to reinforce the place of the Great War in British culture for future generations. Um, and that's that's not something I'm against. I have ambivalence about the way the war is understood. Or I am ambivalent about it, but I'm not against its its place in British uh, society and culture. Yeah, no, I think that's fascinating. I think it was something you touched on earlier as well. This this interaction between the intellectual and the experiential as well. Like you, you have a, an intellectual understanding of the war. Like, oh, I know the dates. I know um, how many casualties there were. I know what battles took place. But then when you actually go there and you, you see the graves and you see the battlefields, there's this connection between the intellectual and the experiential that just makes it a much more powerful experience. Yeah, definitely. And I think also historians of the First World War should acknowledge that people regard the war in the way that they do and they engage and connect with it emotionally for good reasons mm. and equally mm. you know people who are you know p anyone who's critical of, a, of an overly detached view of the conflict should should pause to say well it, well, it is a past event yeah in order to explore it and gain a get an understanding of it then we have to assume a, a, a certain degree of detachment but we should also be, this is something I often say to the public history students who were on the MA at Royal Holloway, we should be honest about our own reasons for being intrigued by something like the Great War. You know, part of the reason I went down the path of becoming a scholar of the conflict is because, you know, when I was seven or eight or nine years old, I read British comics that depicted the war in a, in a particularly visceral and fascinating sure. way to, to the eyes of a child or in the eyes of a child. Um, so we should be honest about our own whimsical or sentimental yeah. reasons for being interested in something. You know, that occasionally, for example, on Twitter or in other social media, people describe themselves as being passionate about the Great War. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's a way in which you can just say, well, that, that's an absurd statement. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're passionate about a devastating moment of industrialized warfare, widespread um, ma you know, mass killing and widespread bereavement, but but I kind of understand where they're coming from. What, what uh, you know, yeah. I suppose what you know, you're being charitable. What they mean is they're passionate about the history of the Great War, but actually mm. what they're passionate about is just this this tragic, poignant, um, emotionally very resonant story of the First World War as they see it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, don't get me on Twitter because Twitter is a bit of a an interesting place, but I think that's a, a conversation for a different time. Um, um, but you, you've also written about some of the, how should we say it, less publicly studied aspects of the war. So you've written about the Jewish experience of the First World War. Um, you've worked a bit on the Irish Revolution and, of course, your, your book on the role of the clergy and religion uh, in the Great War. What drew you to these topics and made you want to write about them? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and maybe, you know, my response to it is, so, is somewhat a, a justification after the fact. You know, and I'm kind of justifying sure. studying these themes, looking back on them. But, I, I, you know, I often I ask students when, when they're looking at a source, let's say a primary source or a text, uh, uh, an image or something from the, the First World War, will tell us what this is, analyze it in its own terms. But then the crucial thing is to try and say what this source tells us 
about the wider experience of the conflict. And I think all of the themes or um, episodes or phenomena related to the war that I've researched and written about, I, I hope tell us something not just about their, the specifics of, of that community or the, or the particular theme, but about the wider British and European inter, international experience of the conflict. So uh, my, my first book, which was based on my doctoral thesis, was about um, religion in the British Army, and I, and I looked at Anglican chaplains in particular. But I, I hope that but in reading that book, you someone might gain an understanding of, of a more universal experience of men attempting to explain something completely novel sure. and frightening and new in familiar terms, in ways that they, you know, can can hope to understand them. So, you know, men go off to war and they have experiences through which they might be either killed or horribly mutilated and that has an impact on the way they understand the war the war it has an impact on the way they understand the world around them and you know big questions about life and afterlife so i looked at anglican chaplains i looked at i would say not even british but very specifically english stories for that book but i hope that it can it can tell us about you know more universal or international engagement with the war and experience of the conflict and, and I would say experience of the front in particular, as well as kind of clarifying the role of the army chaplain and um, Anglican chaplains in particular and their experience of the conflict and their reputation afterwards. I then went on to look at courage and cowardice and, and hopefully, you know, what I wrote about courage again is offers an insight into something that was experienced not just in the British Army, although that's very my specific context, but um, by the other uh, the armies of the other combatant states and also about the history of war more generally. Mm. So um, the loss of agency men experienced during the highly industrialized um, war on the Western Front and in the other theaters of war to me is is fascinating and it's 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 one of the central kind of features of the great war that's novel or distinctive yeah so for millennia before 1914 a man could go into battle and as he was preparing you know as a warrior or a legionary or someone in in warfare before 1914 he could say to himself well i'm physically strong i'm well trained i know my weapon i trust my comrades I'm experienced, so I have a pretty good chance of surviving this. Yeah. Now that didn't disappear completely during the Great War, but it was it was greatly reduced. Oh yeah. So that to me then had an impact on everything else, on the, on, on everything else that the soldiers kind of um, experienced at the front. So that insight is specific to the First World War, but hopefully it sheds light on on warfare more generally. Um, and I looked at, you know, I, I've looked at various things, I, I suppose, just to take Anglo-Jewish responses to the First World War. To me, that was, that was again, was really interesting. And it was a little bit like the way I'd focused on the Church of England and Anglicans, because I don't belong to that tradition or to those, um, to that faith. Sure. And I, I'm not Jewish either. 
So it was it was daunting to 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 research Jewish experience and Jewish history, um, but fascinating because it, it was learning about a different people, a people that I'm I'm not especially familiar with, um, and the, and you know there's the, there's a certain pressure that comes with that as well because you know I'm. I'm Writing about Irish Catholics, for example, I'm a bit I'm more comfortable. And if I say sure. this is someone awful, then so what? It's my community as well. What are you going to do about it? And, you know, there's that dynamic. <laughs> but well, I'm, if I'm writing about Jewish people, whether they're British or Irish or whatever they are, then I'm conscious that I'm writing about a community that is not my own. So so there's a d- degree of kind of respect um, sure. that has paid. So hopefully I did a reasonably good job with that. But what's interesting to me, Zach, is that you know, in, ter- in terms of the population of Britain and Ireland at the time of the First World War, there were about 300,000 Jewish people, heavily concentrated in England. About 80% of the Jewish population of Britain at that time lived in just three English cities, London, Manchester and Leeds. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, so they're, they're, most of them lived in, in Britain, but they're the largest by far non-Christian minority in Britain. So there, there were Muslims in, in Britain at the time, and um, some of them were from, you know, parts of the Middle East, North Africa, and especially South Asia. But many of them were, you know, uh, white British um, converts or, or as they would call them, uh, reverts to, to Islam. But there was only about 10,000 of them, really. So that as, as compared to 300,000 Jews, that's, that's you know, there's, there's a huge, the Jewish community is, is quite large, but it's a minority within a population yeah. of about 45 million, which is overwhelmingly Christian and overwhelmingly Protestant. Uh, and in, in England, um, mostly Anglican. So that that seems niche. It seems specific. Mm. Often, Zach, and, and particularly in times of war, times of heightened emotion and intensity and just endeavor, whether that's economic or industrial or cultural, we learn a lot about a society by the experiences of its minority. Sure. So, you know, we learn a lot about the kind of ultra-nationalistic mood that prevailed in Britain throughout the war by understanding the ways in which Jewish men and women responded to that, engaged in it themselves, and then to a degree became a, became victims of it towards the end of the conflict and especially perhaps in the years afterwards. So anti-Semitism existed in Britain before the outbreak of the Great War, but interestingly anglo-jewish people so particularly jews born and living in england regarded themselves often here i'm talking perhaps more about the elites you know the middle and upper class jewish people regarded themselves as lucky to be english Mm. luckier than their co-religionists anywhere else in the world perhaps most obviously luckier than russian jews who were being actively persecuted but luckier than and more fortunate than and privileged than the Jewish community in France or Germany or Austria, because they were so highly assimilated. Um, you know, they they had thrived in English and wider British society in the last decades of the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, and they were often successful and influential and prosperous. So there was some anti-Jewish pre- uh, prejudice, but it was regarded, I would say, by a lot of Jewish people as a sort of a nuisance. During the war, though, we see the emergence of a political anti-Semitism, really for the first time in British society. And then in the years after the war, that that's that's there. It's a fringe interest, perhaps, you know, in there was a group called the Britons established in 1918, which was avowedly anti-Semitic. And then mm. 
British Union of Fascists is established later. These are fringe groups. They don't have a big impact on wider society. But of course, if you're a member of the relatively small Jewish community and these two established organizations, their whole raison d'etre is to marginalize and persecute you, then yeah. that's, that's very threatening, particularly if you've served in the First World War and made extraordinary sacrifices and, you know, perhaps been wounded or lost a friend or son or brother or whatever. So that phenomenon to me, it tells us a lot, of course, about the experience of British Jews, but it tells us about wider British society. Too. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I've, I find it all fascinating. These these stories of, of people, especially that that maybe have been overlooked in in wider public education or public conscience even. Um, no, I think it's I think it's fascinating. Um, so as a final question, uh, a bit more kind of lighthearted question. Um, what would you tell your younger self about the study of history or, or being a historian that you've now learned? Well, I suppose <laughs> that's only a lighthearted question, really, depending on how you interpret it. I, I would say that my own experience of history, research and writing has been just one long trial and error. You know, it's been a constant kind of messing something up and then realizing, well, that's, that was the wrong way to do it. Now I have to work out the right way to do it. Sure. So perhaps if I could go back and tell my um, younger self, well, you know, don't waste four or five months going down that particular path because it's a dead end or don't look in that archive or whatever. But actually, the experience of making mistakes, the experience of looking in sources or looking at sources or exploring archival collections that don't turn out to be especially fruitful is um, is very instructive. It's healthy. It's part of the it's part of your one's growth and development, I think, as a historian, you know, yeah. it's been crucial to my own development. I'm always learning. I'm very conscious of my flaws and shortcomings as a historian, as someone who teaches history and writes history. But um, I also think I've learned qu quite a lot in, in, in the past 10 or 15 years, and hopefully I, I bring that to bear. The other thing I would do, and I, I suppose I was like this a bit myself, is students at an undergraduate level and, and indeed postgraduate level, I think I, I was a guilty of this even well into my doctorate, is that we, we say, well, I'm really interested in X. I want to know more about Y. I want to explore this phenomenon. And we pose the questions before considering the sources that might give us the answers. Sure. Whereas really the process should work the other way around. We should go to the collection and say, well, I'm interested in this very broad issue let's say, you know, um, what I'm looking at at the moment, which is the British experience of the Irish War of Independence. So I'm not going to pose any questions. That's my theme. I'm going to look at sources that might enlighten me about that very broad and capacious issue. And then I'm going to start posing questions. Yeah. Whereas very often we say, well, I want to know what they thought about X. I want to know what you know, men who'd served in the Western Front during the Great War and then went on to serve in the um, the Auxiliary Division in Ireland and committed terrible atrocities and all of this sort of, sort of thing. Well, what did they think of, you know, how do they interpret the war in Ireland or how did they um, 
how did their loved ones in Britain feel when they were killed or that sort of thing? I don't know if the sources can tell me that. I mean, I do now, but I didn't know <laughs> a year ago or two years ago. So one should go into, one should approach a project sources first. Sure. You know, so you should have a, a very general idea about a theme that you're interested in, but don't put, hold back on posing questions until you've really had a good rummage around in the archival sources. And what's what's often frustrating, Zach, is that some of the most interesting questions we might ask, even about 19th or 20th century history, when there is an abundance of sources, are, are just difficult to answer or address. It's difficult to establish certain things because the sources were destroyed or people just didn't write about what we hoped they might have written about. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What, like we often, and I would admit to this, I will, you know, I've been as guilty of this as anyone. We're front, we look at sources, you know, why the hell didn't he write about X? Why in his diary does he talk about his breakfast and not, you know, how he interpreted what was happening to him, and, you know, <laughs> or kind of yeah. existential level or whatever, because that would be more useful and more yeah. picturesque and more interesting. Um, but that's the nature of historical research. And, and it makes the really enlightening, and um, instructive material you find all the more valuable because it's not abundant, you know. Um, and one of the frustrating things about modern history is that because in the in the 20th century, in, in terms of European communities, in any case, there's there's a high level of literacy. You know, there's so much personal correspondence and there's so much memoirs published and unpublished and there's so many um, you know, personal narrative sources that you just have a huge amount of stuff to wade through. And you're always going to be overlooking someone or something, sure. you know. Um, but I think we can at least acknowledge experiences, whether we fully incorporate them into our work or not. So, yeah, I don't know what I'd tell my younger self. I tell them to enjoy the experience more. Sure. <laughs> I think often when you're when I've been working on projects in the past, whether it's an article or, you know, a book, or editing volumes of essays and stuff, I've been so caught up in the demand, the needs of, of the the requirements of the exercise and the pressure to get it done that I haven't fully enjoyed it. I haven't said I'm fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. Um, I try to embody that a bit more now, but I'm not sure if I always live up to it. Oh, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Well, it's been great to chat to you. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It is greatly appreciated. And if you guys do want to find out more about the work that Dr. Madigan has done and is doing, you can follow him on Twitter at Madigan Edward. And you can check out the blog that he is the editor of Historians for History. That's historiansforhistory.wordpress.com. So make sure you check that out. There's some good stuff on there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Present History Podcast, and we will see you in the next one.